This week on Glistening Particles. You know, it's quite a privilege to guide a family on a trip and everyone starts the trip, you know, behind their behind their tablets or iPhones and then, you, you know, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the trip, then you disappear into the middle of nowhere, literally, and they don't have those luxuries or access to those luxuries any longer. And then by the end of the trip, you know, the parents are saying, geez, we've we connected as a family like never before. And there's really something special about that. This is Glistening Particles, and I'm Jane, your host. I like to hear inspiring stories for people that I barely know and share them with you, and that's what we do here. I never know how it's going to go. I never know what they're going to say, but it's always a good story. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of those who are donating to the Glistening Particles podcast to bring great content your way every week. Those include Christine Collister, Lorraine Tarbiton, Mike Kiffel, Paul McIntosh, Tanner Lawley, and Lori Hughes. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, hop out to glisteningparticles.com and click on Donate. There are a couple ways to do it. One is through a monthly donation on Patreon, and the other is through PayPal or credit card. And of course, thanks to all the guests who come and share their stories and their enthusiasm. Thanks, everyone. In this episode, I'm talking with Craig Latar, and he works in the bush of South Africa as a wilderness guide. He shares his passion for the planet and how his company takes ecotourism very seriously. You'll hear why it's so important to him and what parts of it tug at his heart the most. There's something extra special about him, though, and how he mixes in his personal experience with the current statistics that might just inspire you to take your own first safari. And be sure to hang around for his random facts at the end because they're both informative and, well, you'll see. All right, everyone. Today I'm here with Craig Glatar from South Africa, and he's going to tell us about wilderness travel adventures and hopefully a whole lot of other things. Hi, Craig. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this interview for, well, ever since we got connected because this is new for me. You know, one of my goals is to talk with someone from every country on the planet, which there happen to be 191 of them. And so you are my official first person from South Africa. So there we go. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Yeah. So tell me a little, tell everybody a little bit about what you do and why, um, what your passion is about life, what you're like chasing after. Okay, um, so I work for a rather amazing organization called Wilderness Safaris. Um, it's a company that probably has the largest ecotourism footprint in Africa. So we operate in, in eight different countries across Africa. And um, yeah, I'm working in this company. I guess my entire passion and commitment to the cause is to help them with their ecotourism and conservation model. You know, can you define what ecotourism means? 
Yeah, sure. Ecotourism, ecotourism is a really fantastic concept. And I'll, I'll give you an example rather than define it. Okay. Um, and I'll use an example from a, a, an area in Namibia. So there's some really large open spaces in Namibia. It's a country about twice the size of California with just 2 million people. So the, well, the Californians will be gasping right now, imagining <laughs> so few people. Um, but there's some really beautiful wilderness areas there. So what we do is we go into an area, we find there's you know, a certain number of really interesting and unique species in an area like um, desert adapted black rhino. Mm. And um, we build a model around that where we build a lodge in the area and we lease the land from the local community and then essentially over time we engage with that local community set up a land trust for them so they can um you know they can save all that um all that money they're getting in from the lease fees and then we train the staff to run the camp and then after a number of years of running that land trust with them those rural communities actually buy a percentage ownership of the lodge so suddenly you have a lodge in an area um, where it's generating a tourism interest. Uh, tourism brings funding to the area and the local community have a vested interest and ownership in the area. And so they conserve that, that, um, that region, you know, that natural habitat and those unique species in that area. It's a very, very clever model. How, okay, so that is amazing. How, how long have you, like how long does it take to go from end to end on that model, to go from you've gone in and created the, you found the area, created the lodge, and now they own it? And own the land. Very good question, and it it varies in different countries. So okay. obviously, different areas, different countries, hugely different um, timescales. But um, generally, you know, from start to finish, these things take at least five years until um, they effectively an ecotourism model. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a great model right now in Rwanda, where we've actually built a lodge, and you know, the local community working in the lodge and managing the lodge, and the big goal there is we've bought a whole lot of agricultural land on the edge of a national park and we're reforesting it. And in a year and a half, we're already at 30,000 trees. So within five years, we, we will have expanded the, you know, the, the, um, the range of the, the national park and the habitat for mountain gorillas. So generally five years is when we want to start to be turning an effective model. That's amazing. Like, how have I not heard about this? You know, that's what blows my mind. Like, how do I not know these things are happening? Because that's so exciting that you're doing that. No, no, it's incredible. Thank you. It, it might be chalked up to, you know, that that horrible saying of deepest, darkest Africa. There's a lot that happens in Africa <laughs> that doesn't get, get out into the rest of the world. Maybe that's right. why. But a lot of positive things, at, at least. So how many countries are you doing this in today? We're currently operating in eight countries in Africa, mostly Southern Africa. We, we, we're actually conserving almost two and a half million hectares of, of natural habitat. Oh, my of gosh. Land. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm like these, these gasps and amazing, you know, tones aren't they're, – they're, they're sincere. I just didn't know this was happening. And it's, it makes me really happy that you're doing this work that someone's taking oh, care of this you. and that you're bringing the people along with it. And it's not a matter of going in and taking it. It's a matter of helping them. Yeah. Know? And sharing and sharing the ownership of it. Look, we've got a lot of work to do to, to give some perspective to your listeners. You could fit the United States three times into the continent of Africa. So two and a half million hectares is but a pin drop, but it's, it's starting to get significant. So, so that's good. And how long has the company been doing this? How long have you been in business? 
Sure, we've been running for 35 years, so oh, it's, wow. that's that's quite old for a, a company in Africa in this kind of um, industry. So, yeah. How long have you worked with them? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm unfortunately I've only been here seven years, but I've known the company for a long time before that. I used to guide trips and would often go through their lodges. So it's mm. been a dream of mine to work with them. They unfortunately never had an office in the area of the country I live in. And about you know, eight years ago or so, they opened an office here. So then, uh, yeah, I was banging on the door. <laughs> <laughs> so it is your passion. I mean, it's like from from way back. Wait, how do you how do you learn to even do these things? Did you go to university for something that lent, it, lent itself to this? Or I did. Train I, on I, the go. I, no, I, I did. I studied in in the ecotourism or rather conservation fields, but um, it's yeah, it's a passion that was born at at a young age. Um, you know, uh, my parents were wild about Africa. That's a terrible pun, but they were wild about <laughs> Africa, and um, we spent a lot of time traveling all over Africa. And you know, my father was very involved in in the, the natural world in that sense. So spending a lot of time in the bush and it gets mm -hmm. it gets into your blood, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did they uh what did they do that that enabled well, them my, to do that work? My father, well he actually worked in the finance side, but he just had a, a huge passion for, you know, the wilderness areas in Africa. It's mm -hmm. it's not uncommon for many privileged people in Africa to be able to get out into these wilderness areas and you know holidays here are, are not so much going on a cruise or to a hotel but packing the land rover and then spending a couple of mm. weeks camping in the middle of nowhere so it, it's we, we're fortunate in this part of the world that we've got a lot of these wide open spaces so when you spend time there you certainly develop a passion for it so can a person who's not been um, brought up in that environment and maybe isn't quite as wilderness adapted um, do one of these kind of trips and really uh, not die, you know, basically. Oh. <laughs> well, that, well, let's just say that's our number one goal is to ensure <laughs> that nobody dies on any of these trips. It's bad for business. Um, no, it's 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 a lot safer than one would assume. Um, you know, that you've got any – you can have any type of adventure traveling in Africa from as rough and ready as camping in the middle of nowhere to – the ultimate in luxury and private um, aircraft and private mm -hmm. vehicles with private guides. Um, so there's a broad spectrum of experiences that can be had. I mean, you can, you can these days you can go into the middle of the Congo and you know track Western lowland gorillas on foot in relative luxury. Um, so that's actually quite surprising. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's certainly reached a level of luxury that can be enjoyed by all. Yep, I think my exposure to it is maybe the Ellen show, you know, where she went with yeah. her, with what she's doing and was near the gorillas and also the giraffes. I think that's my most recent exposure to that experience. And that would be on the luxury end, I'm guessing. And so, yeah, she obviously traveled at that luxury end of the scale, but goodness, you can do it as rough and tough as you like it or in <laughs> that of luxury. All right. Yeah, I think I'm sure at some point that's going to be someplace I have to go. In fact, on what someone I know just was in Africa doing doing just that, doing a safari and going out and seeing elephants. And she had such a great story to share. It sounds like for most people it's life-changing. Do you see that when you take people out? She's absolutely. There's there's something in it. Um you know, I heard it beautifully described, or at least uh, from a friend who, who talked to this fact that said, 
you know, the, if you believe it or don't want to believe it, but the origin of man, you know, lies in the heart of Africa. Mm-hmm. And so as cliched as it might sound, he mentioned to me that, you know, as human beings, we have that primal urge to return to our origins. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Africa hits home with people. It's really hard to describe and verbalize. But um, yes, we tell a lot of guests that um, there's only one warning when you're traveling to Africa is you're going to be coming back. That's the only travel ah, warning. Ah, I like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is it that you, for you personally, like, means the most to you like that you just can't get enough of there what is it that holds you to that well it's a good question jane and it's actually a question that for me personally is becoming more and more relevant so you know we all talk about this connected versus disconnected world and how technology is driven maybe both sides of that you could argue both points um there is something about the insignificance or the fact that these huge tracts of wilderness humble you. They just break you down in an incredible way mm. when you realize you're just a small part of this massive wilderness, this huge ecosystem that in large parts of the world we've converted to, we've bent it to our will, uh, for want of a better mm-hmm. description. But you'll find in parts of Africa, there is no way human beings have bent any of these areas to their will. And, and that, that feeling of insignificance in those areas, um, that's, that's something that, that um, you know, drives me. And that just keeps me coming back for more. Yeah, it sounds like it, it almost gets a grip, a grip on you. Yeah. Right. No, in deal. You know, there's that, that saying, the African bug that bites, uh, uh-huh. meaning literal bugs but there's definitely something in it um it gets a hold of you and uh, th- that feeling you experience when you come back from it and, and you get it in other parts of the world you know you go and spend time in a wilderness area in the united states whether it's you know yosemite or yellowstone national park and you come back recharged you absolutely do um and i think it's it's even stronger here in africa and maybe because it's it's such a raw and powerful place and, and you really do feel insignificant because there's a lot more wide open natural spaces than there are developed areas on this continent. So it certainly hits you. Yeah, it's so when you get to that place where you realize there are literal miles or maybe tens of miles or maybe more before you would see another uh, mark of human existence. No, absolutely. I mean, there's... You know, there's areas in northern Namibia where we operate that you can only fly into and you won't see another human being in that area. It's just, but you'll see a lot of biodiversity in that area, a lot Mm -hmm. of wildlife that's adapted to it, but no Mm -hmm. humans. You know, you can go to certain areas of Central Africa where if you really knew your stuff, you could spend a day in 50 square feet and probably add three new species to the list. Uh, It's that biodiverse, yeah. Wow. It's yeah. hard for me to imagine that. You know what I mean? I've been in a you know, very developed first world country for my whole life. So it's hard for me to even wrap my head around that. Even when I'm in places maybe out west in the United States or where I, you know, get into what to me feels remote. <laughs> yeah. There's still somebody probably 5 miles away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. I still have cell phone service, so it's not quite that remote. Um I can't even imagine that. You know, no, many many of the places we, we operate in, there's no cell phone service, certainly no Wi-Fi. 
Um, so everything's on two-way radio. So there is that like element of safety if need be. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really are you really are disconnected. But in a weird way, that that disconnection is a reconnection, like a reconnection to to nature, to self, to family. You know, it's quite a privilege to guide a family on a trip, and everyone starts the trip, you know, behind their behind their tablets or iPhones, and then you you know mm-hmm. at the beginning of the trip, then you disappear into the middle of nowhere, literally. And they don't have those luxuries or access to those luxuries any longer. And then by the end of the trip, you know, the parents are saying, geez, we've we connected as a family like never before. And there's really something special about that. I know. You know, I had that with my son. We went on a camping trip for school. So it was still like very well structured and, you know, like not very uh, rugged. But we had to yeah. turn in all our all of our devices before we got there. And uh, on the way back, he said, I don't even want to pick my phone up again. I just had so much fun <laughs> just being with my friends and being doing things and being outside. And, you know, that lasted for not very long. But it is it's one of those things that I think about, like, it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have mobile phones attached to us every day. Yeah. You know, and like, what is that? St- I think about that, like, on the one hand, I've traveled a lot more um, as a, you know, a single mom with my son because I have the luxury of GPS. Like I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise because I seriously can't find myself out of a paper bag. But um, (laughs) so that's that's given me a lot more freedom than I would have had without it. But at the same time, what's it taking away? So we talked about what drives you and pulls you to this passion. What is it that, for lack of a better term, breaks your heart in the midst of it? I think we all have that with passions. There's the yeah, gosh, is it? Yeah, passion has to be. Passion's often driven by the the. Um, I guess you could say the sadder side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that definitely exists. You know, the hard part is to see it. Um, to see it all running through your hands, <laughs> like the proverbial sand in the hourglass. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we losing. Gosh, our podcast started what, like 12 minutes ago, and we already lost an elephant to poaching, and by the end of it, we probably would have lost a few more. So mm-hmm. that that kind of, to give that kind of context to it, uh, you know, and sometimes in the company I work in, we, we, all of us work here because we are driven by this passion, but sometimes it feels like pushing water up the hill with a rake because um, it's disappearing fast, and it's disappearing faster than you can imagine. I know there's a lot of talk around it, and you know, plastic's a big talk at the moment in the social media space and the threat it poses to our planet. But it's scary when you can actually, when you work in it, you can actually see it. It's not next generation's problem or the generation after that's problem. It's it's going fast. Here's one for you that probably hasn't made any headlines because the big things that make the headlines are the poaching of rhino or you know, what we call megafauna, significant, significant wildlife. Mm -hmm. But nobody probably knows that last year we lost six bird species on the planet, most of them in the Amazon basin. And that's purely because of, um, because of deforestation. So it's quite frightening when you start to think that every year we're losing a handful of species. Um, Yeah, it's a frightening statistic. I mean, extinction is a, a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's just that extinction rates are, you know, a thousand times faster than they've ever been. So that's that's poignant. <laughs> that absolutely is. So I see why it's breaking your heart, especially when you're in the midst of it all the time. Yeah. You know, I was um, using this analogy yesterday about, and I think this is really common for people who have a big passion about 
something and because it, it bleeds into everything, you know. So when we talk about what you're saying about the animals and the extinction, that's tied to plastics. It's tied to climate change. It's tied to uh, natural resources. It's tied to development. It's tied to all these things. It's almost like a like this spider web, you know. And yeah. when you when you pull on one, it pulls on all of them. When you pull on one thread, they all start to stretch, and it, it becomes overwhelming because how do you you know how do you fix them all? And I think what we what I had to keep saying was go back and fix the one you feel more most passionate about, and everybody will have one, and hopefully you know not everybody but many people will have one and we're all moving forward together. So it's it's almost like you can't separate them anymore, but we have to, because you can't take on all of them. Like one person can't go after all those things at the same time. Yeah, you know? no, well said. And I mean, it's, I, I guess the, you know, we all talk about managing the information age and the pressure it places upon us. Like you described the, the disconnect that you experienced with, with your son. Uh, the one good thing about the information age is, you know, opportunities like, like you and I are talking about right now. You're getting that message out there, and more and more people are hearing it, and more and more people are, are you know, actioning something for mm -hmm. it. So, I think I think the tide will turn. I wouldn't say it's turned yet, but it, it's certainly going the right direction. So, in the work that you're doing, what's can you think of like one? experience you could share where you just went whoa that was a huge win just like th that you experienced firsthand uh, wow that's an interesting one a huge a huge one i mean i'll be honest and i'll, I'll talk to you probably maybe because it's the most recent one for mm -hmm. me that's good but, that's fair you probably got a lot <laughs> this, yeah there, there are quite a few well i'll tell you two really significant ones that hit home with me and you know i've only been a small part of it we many of us who work here we we're all small parts cogs to the wheel but um the first one is wilderness safaris has been heavily involved in translocating rhino both black and white rhino from you know various areas of poaching pressure to to parts of Botswana that are really well protected. Botswana as a Botswana as a government is extremely uh, conservation conscious, uh, so it's it's a very effective place to to mm -hmm. enable conservation programs, and um, so we've had a huge undertaking for many years, actually since 2001. So it's been an ongoing. Been an ongoing project where we've moved a significant number of rhino. We, we're not quite allowed to say how many and where <laughs> for mm -hmm. obvious reason, but moved a significant amount of rhino to areas where they're really well protected. And the essence of that success is those rhino are now successfully breeding. So that population ah. in that country is increasing, whereas in many places in Africa it's on on the decline. So that that's a that's an obvious success. And then um, definitely this reforestation program with the new lodge in Rwanda, because um, you probably know quite a bit about mountain gorillas and mm -hmm. you know the, the story behind mountain gorillas. And that's a great example of ecotourism at work. When you asked me in the beginning, what is ecotourism? So mountain gorilla numbers were plummeting. You know they were down to 300 odd, and then uh, Diane Fossey brought a lot of attention to their plight while well, she actually gave her life for her, her cause. And, um, you know, and the ecotourism model built around seeing mountain gorillas is what has enabled that, that population to increase They're just over a thousand today. Um, the main challenge now is they're increasing in number, but the habitat has decreased, or at least there's, there's no habitat growing. Right. So how do you solve that? So I think the reforestation 
project is a really good idea because it's looking a little bit beyond just the survival of the species, but ensuring their habitat increases too. I think that's a very unique You know, Craig, I don't normally have this happen, but like this has brought tears to my eyes. I'm like so excited that this work is happening. And when you said the number 300, it was like a sock in the gut, you know, like 300. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm seriously, this is is so amazing. And the work that you're doing, and it's repeatable. It's the kind of thing that you can look at many different species and create a similar model. So when you talked about the lions, is there something being done like that, either translocation yeah. or, you know, recreating their habitats or something like that? Uh, or it not recreating is. the building? Jeez, yeah. that's, that's, that's very exciting that you mentioned that mm-hmm. because we're on the cusp of some really great work with lions. And it's, it's not wilderness per se. Wilderness are part of a, um, uh, wilderness are part of this, um, process, but, there's an incredible fund started in the United States called the Lion Recovery Fund, or LRF. And they are working hand-in-hand, hand, or, or at least a subsidiary of WC and the Wildlife Conservation Network. And their whole mandate is to fund and get funding and donations and support various different individual conservation programs saving lions. We, we work pretty closely with one in Namibia. And so these guys are the modern the modern world has these incredible concepts called impact funds. And impact funds are essentially a financially based fund that invests in conservation or community driven programs. Mm-hmm. And the investors, instead of the old days where you gave over half a million dollars to some conservation organization and you know it was your tax write-off and that was that. These days, you rather invest in an impact fund, you get a return on your investment, mm-hmm. but you're investing in it not because you want an aggressive financial return, you're investing in it because you know it's doing good. And the Lion Recovery Fund is is one such fund. You can invest in it, you know that you've got people who are knowledgeable about lions, about li- lionscapes, lion habitats, and they're mm-hmm. investing in the right conservation programs on the ground. It's a very, very good concept. I think they're going to turn around, turn around that lion decline. Oh, that makes me really happy because that was another number that was hit me in the gut. You know, I have a personal um, passion towards polar bears. Do you think they're doing something like that for them as well? Or is that going to have to go with um, climate change before that's we... a That's <laughs> a great question. I mean, I'm I'm certainly not your polar bear expert. <laughs> but, uh, but Come on, um, don't you know everything about everything? <laughs> I, I, I wish I knew more about polar bears. But from what I've heard, you know, there's some really good ecotourism models in areas like Churchill in Canada and, and Svalbard, which is a protectorate of Norway um, up in uh, north of Scandinavia Um, and I heard they got some really effective ecotourism models I think where they're under a bit more pressure is poaching isn't their challenge maybe it is but I don't think it's significant I think it is like you say climate change that's presenting the biggest problem Mm -hmm. so they've got to turn the tide of climate change as opposed to let's say a a easier to manage poaching issue right Um, yeah I mean they are very different and and there's a, everybody has to participate in the climate change piece. It's not just one country or one, you know, there's, it's not the same thing. And it's probably kind of tough to um, move polar bears somewhere else because it's just, they just need to be in the cold. Is something like this being done like in the rainforests of like South America as well? Yeah, there is. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of incredible programs 
you, you know, the, the biggest challenge in conservation, and I'm maybe rather opinionated about this, but the biggest challenge in conservation is there's so many individual organizations and individual people doing great work. It's the consolidation of all of that that presents the biggest challenge. You know, there's, there's a huge amount of organizations and some are focused on jaguar conservation and some on mm-hmm. rhino and some on really small species. There's an amazing organization called EDGE which stands for Evolutionary Distinct and Globally Endangered Animals. And they basically fund the small stuff that no one's interested in, like golden moles or some arbitrary <laughs> shrew somewhere in the world. A tarantulas. So yeah, 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 exactly. Like that kind of stuff. The, 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 not the cuddly and fuzzy stuff that sells well, like a polar bear or a rhino or whatever it might be. And so there's so <laughs> hey, wait, many wait, wait. When, when did we ever describe rhinos as cuddly? As fuzzy, yeah. <laughs> Good point. No, wait, wait till you see a baby rhino and it makes these strange squeaking sounds. It okay. might just be the cutest thing you've ever seen. But you're right, cuddly and fuzzy, it is not. Um, Fair enough. But yeah, there's a lot of organizations doing good work, especially in South America and in Brazil particularly. But it's just a consolidation of all of this that is needed. But I think as more and more people learn about it, that will happen organically, you know. Do you feel like there's enough education going on in schools to help our, you know, the next generation at least be more aware than they are, than maybe my generation was or the generation after me? I think that's a, I think you've touched on an extremely good point here. I think there's a lot of information if people selectively choose to access it. I certainly don't think it's been driven through schooling systems, educational systems enough. Uh, Like we described earlier, I was lucky enough to develop a passion for this at an early age because of what Mm -hmm. my parents exposed me to. Um, But there's many children who aren't exposed to it or maybe don't fortunately have the access to it. That what has to be driven through schooling or educational programs is, is really important. Wouldn't it be cool if part of education, you know, as kids entered school or somewhere in the early years, every child was um, allowed to pick an animal or a species that they wanted to be the champion of? Okay. And everybody, and like you get into school and you pick one. And now for the rest of your days, you know what? You pay attention to that one. You know, you. You read the articles, you look for ways to donate, you look for ways to serve, but just you know that like, I'm here as the, you know, the pen pal champion, you know, human carry uh, uh, protector of polar bears. And that's my job, part of my job in life, you know. That's a great idea. I wonder who's going to get stuck with the anaconda, which maybe is in this part. <laughs> there are people who like the anacondas, and there are people who like there are people who like the tarantulas, and I think there are even people who like the really scary, fat black spider that was on my deck the other day that wasn't a tarantula and was a lot smaller, but still scared the heck out of me. There are still people who like them. They might not be able to decide at six, but maybe they decide as part of their graduation they choose the animal. You know, if they haven't chosen one yet when they know a little bit more about themselves. But um, I think that as humans, you know, as we, we need to partner with the other beings on our earth and find, you know, find one that we, if we picked, if everybody, if everybody just picked one, think about that, what a difference that would make. Uh, That's a great idea. I mean, yeah, if everyone had to champion their specific species, I think that's a super idea. Jeepers with, um, you know, with, 
well, we could easily do it because if you think about it, let's let's run the numbers. There's right. currently there's about what two million species are like registered are papered. They reckon we're only a quarter of the way through that. That right. is roughly eight million species on the planet, and we probably you know we're losing species without even knowing it in certain areas. Right. Right. And what we had like almost nine billion people. Jeez, we could have like a team dedicated to each species if we I wanted know. to. It's a I cool know. Idea. Okay, we're gonna need to offline have like a at some point have a conversation <laughs> about this and create a website that has a list of all the species and a way for people to choose the like people pick a star that they're going to be assigned to you know what i mean yeah people pick point. stars in yeah. the heavens let's pick something that's on earth that needs a little bit of our care right now because we really can't we aren't in a position to help the stars yet you know it's a it's a great idea yeah geez well soon we're going to need to find another star to move near to um, <laughs> i know but right until, then, <laughs> until then until yeah. then but yeah, I'm serious. I mean, maybe this is a way to get like, because you what you said was a way to connect all these smaller groups doing different things. So like, let's say, okay, I'm going to play this out for a minute. Maybe I'll edit it out later if it's just too much rambling. But let's say we, uh, uh, let's use the polar bear as my, or let's use the rhino because we keep using my example. Let's use the black rhino. And if the person wants to pick that particular black rhino, once they do, under that, there's a list of all the different groups that are helping that particular animal or that particular species. And so now they've got like a direct link to here's how I can help. Here's where I can learn what's going on with them. Here's where the articles happen. And maybe it'll work. It's a cool idea. It's yeah. certainly, it's certainly, I, you know, like I was saying, I think as more and more people get engaged in this space and, and realize how important it is, you're going to find more and more of these organizations and individuals mm -hmm. um, collaborating. I mean, we found that when we started working on the Rhino Translocation Program, there were some other great companies that are also in the ecotourism space that were doing the exact same thing. And it was, and it was funny because in many ways, you know, each ecotourism company is a competitor in a sense. But it's interesting. You find in that space that people certainly work together as, a, as opposed to against each other. So I think you're onto something here. Uh, I think the human I am. spirit is a spirit that wants to work together. <laughs> they, they do it want is. that kind of thing. So It is. And yeah. it would be, there would be like unknown benefits we wouldn't even know from. Like when we started on our call today, I said, what a cool world we live in that I, as this, you know, mom in the Midwest of, United States is talking to you, who's um, out doing eco conservation in South Africa. Like, how does that happen? You know, and this yeah. is what something like this could do is connect people around the world. Yeah. Yeah. So at I'm glad we got day, that solved, you, you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well said. At the end of the day, you kind of just want to leave it in a better state than what you found it in, right? Exactly. And um, hopefully yeah. have some fun along the way, you know, and enjoy it, right? That's true. That's true. So um, what else, what is something that I haven't asked yet that you want to make sure that you share about the work that you do and your passion? Did I miss anything? Sure. Um, that's a, a good question. I think, you know, for me, it's just a, a case of, of people understanding that, you know, the tourism model isn't just a revenue-driven model that, you know, you go on your holiday and you enjoy what you do and you leave without having an impact by investing in an ecotourism mm -hmm. model, whether it's Wilderness Safaris or any other company, that's that's largely irrelevant. But by investing in an ecotourism model, you have a massive impact on that area. And so the one thing I want to get across 
to travelers because we all love to travel. And I mean, that's a big part of our lives these days. We've got such easy access with globalization. To travelers, I just want to ask people to really um, uh, interrogate uh, the companies and the people they're traveling with. Like ensure the money you're spending on it is making an impact. And then you know that every time you travel, every time you are increasing your carbon footprint through travel, which is what happens, you're actually offsetting it massively uh, for the areas you're traveling to. I think, I think we have to become more conscious travelers. That's important. You said that so well. And my next question would be, is, are, is there any advice for how we interrogate them to make sure that we're doing the right thing, making the right choices and who we're traveling with? I mean, you'll, th- that's a great question. Hard one to answer because instinctively you, you'll, you'll get a sense whether somebody is, is greenwashing or not. You know, it's a, it's a massive challenge these days to sift out the greenwashing uh, companies from those who don't. And the companies that can, that can show you examples of the direct impact or effect they're having. Like, so for example, I'll, I'll reference back to that lodge um, uh, with the reforestation, Basati. You can go to the lodge and you can actually spend part of your time there by replanting one of the indigenous trees. And they explain to you what tree should be planted where, and we've got a whole nursery program running there. That's an obvious actionable carbon footprint offset and so companies that can showcase that are clearly not greenwashing in that space you, you need to you need to, they need to be able to present actionable examples um, of what they're doing and and just just define greenwashing because that's a new term for me okay uh, yeah um it's you know there's a, a lot of um i guess a lot of organizations that might claim they're doing this or that for conservation or community support um, when, me, when really it's just a marketing campaign, you know, attached to, to, to what is the company. So mm-hmm. I think you've got to be careful about because it's easy these days to brand and market yourself. It's a little bit harder to have your feet held to the flames and prove that you're actually actioning or commit, you're committing to these projects you say you're supporting. I think that's a really important thing. You know, Wilderness is lucky because it's a listed company, actually. So there's public record. So okay. if you wanted to, you could go into, we've got a website, which isn't the Wilderness Safaris website. The Safaris website is the, um, the nice tourism veneer. But if you went into Wilderness Holdings website, you can see our public reports and the sustainability reports and the carbon offset. I mean, goodness, when I travel all over the world to talk about the work we're doing. I have to send my sustainability manager my, you know, my carbon footprint for my travel. And that goes into the sustainability report. Seriously? So yeah, yeah, yeah. How and do you do that? Record. I want to understand well, how, how that happens. Like, so what is, what is, ne- yeah. Next time you go and book a flight on Emirates, Emirates okay. are clever this way, have a look. They'll actually measure the, like the carbon tonnage or the carbon weight um, that you are costing by sitting on that plane, for example. You can actually measure it. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, it's incredible. It's gotten that advanced. So if you, if you commit it enough, you can, you can actually go and see what impact you're having by almost every action you undertake. So when um, you travel, do you specifically then say, how am I going to reverse that, offset it? Yeah, well, like the, I guess the important point is, you know, we all measured against it to a degree in the company because right. it's a, it's, we, we receive this report every year that's called the Sustainability Review. 
Um, and that essentially goes through all of the detail about, um, you know, the conservation programs we're doing, the community-driven work we're doing. And then it actually does have measurables on our carbon impact, and, you know, and how we're offsetting that if we, you know, now we don't serve guests water and plastic water bottles in camp. I mean, that's an obvious one. We now right. use aluminium bottles and they keep the same bottle and they have to refill it, you know, through a water filter system. And, you know, but even the guys in the offices, you, you, you're under continual pressure. <laughs> if you work at Wilderness Safaris, you're under continual pressure to be conscious of this. Um, you go and chuck the wrong plastic in the wrong recycle bin, you could find yourself in a disciplinary hearing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not that bad, but it's <laughs> everybody holds everyone else to account. I think right. that's great. I think that's a good culture. Peer pressure for sure. And that's I think just my little bit of travel around the US has made me look at my own sustainability. Yeah, it's you know? there's there's great examples of it. I think you know, as opposed to preaching about it, because nobody likes to be preached to just through action. Right. You know, other people eventually see that, and then they maybe wonder, think, and they interrogate their own integrity uh, in that space. I think that's the best way to do it. Also, I like to be perfect about things like that, and I'm not always perfect, but I'm 90% better than I used to be at those things. You know what I mean? It's just inching in the right direction. And the one phrase I saw that really stuck with me is, it's only one straw, said 8 billion people. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. So I actually saw that recently as well. And again, on a social media post, it's only yeah. one straw, said 8 billion people. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's such a great saying because it gives context to it, you know. Exactly. Same with water bottles. It's only one water bottle. It's only one plastic bag. It's only one whatever. And um, yeah, it keeps us thinking, that's for sure. Yeah. Indeed. Okay, so now I have, uh, I'm going to redirect a little bit here. I find that people who have a very big passion about life usually have maybe more than one. So is there some other area that you focus on a lot that just really lights you up if you need a break from being in the wilderness? Or is it, what, what would that be? Uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I've got my own, I guess everyone has their hobbies, don't they? So mm -hmm. maybe it's still uh, that, that um, underlying passion of being close to nature, but I love surfing. I'm an avid surfer. I really love the simplicity of it i love the, the being in the ocean so that's a, a bit of a uh, i guess it's an in antithesis to being in the bushes being in the ocean they generally <laughs> don't mix um <laughs> so that's a, a passion and um yeah i'm really interested in the world of dogs as silly as that sounds i've got yes i'm just super interested in, <laughs> in dogs and dog training and i got a wonderful little spaniel myself called uh -huh. fet cook which is the name of a type of um brown bread in south africa because he looks like that bread <laughs> fit, fit um, cook f-i-t cook yeah it's almost like like directly translated it means fat cake oh, okay and he looks he looks like a piece of fat cake <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i hope yeah. he's not listening <laughs> oh gosh he'll be highly offended um yeah so those are two of my passions i guess um hobbies so does does fit cook go with you on your trips Oh, gosh, no. He wouldn't last a day. He'd be eaten <laughs> by a leopard or find himself in an eagle's nest. No, he's he's not built for the bush. Um, so, no, he's just at home. He's with my, my lovely wife. She, she he keeps her company when I'm on the road. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice. That's a good description. You know, eagle's nest. I can totally see that. 
<laughs> so um, now we're going to go into the much uh, uh, anticipated random question round. So uh, I was wondering if you can tell a random fact round. Can you tell me three completely random facts about yourself, like things you wouldn't put on a job application or probably not relevant to you, but a dating site because you're married, so you wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, good one. Well, I'm really kind of stumbling now after you said that on a dating <laughs> site. Um, let me think. Wow, three random. Okay, well, we'll I can start with one because you, you asked me at the beginning of the podcast how I explain my really complicated surname, which I, I or rather not explain, but pronounce, which I don't even pronounce well myself. <laughs> but um, the irony in my surname is it's Germanic in origin and glatt hard, if you think about it, glatt means smooth and hard means hair and I'm bald. <laughs> so, so there's probably some significance to my surname, like of male pattern baldness for like hundreds of generations. Um, so that's a weird random Aww. fact. Ah, oh, sorry about um, that. <laughs> no, no, that's all good. It's got to come out sooner or later. Um, uh, you know, and they do say male pattern baldness, it is biology. So I don't know if you've heard this, that male pattern baldness is a result of an overproduction of testosterone in the body, which, which you know, the side effects lead to greater muscular strength and sexual stamina. But I've learned to live with those <laughs> side effects every day. Have um, you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's biology, Jane. That's, that's okay. not a story. So you're saying um, look for the bald-headed man is what you're trying to yeah, tell me, yeah, kind yeah. of in code. Yeah, got it. Yeah, got you, it. yeah you, can't, you okay. can't beat science, you know. Thanks for that um, tip-off. Now I'm set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think two other ones. Yeah, I worked for a short while as a lumberjack in the forests of northern Sweden. That's a bit arbitrary. Um, luckily, we replanted actually everything we cut, so that was kind of cool. The, the Swedes are, are pretty environmentally conscious. Definitely. How um, did you end up there? I just I ended up studying at Stockholm University, and then um, I needed a job. When I finished studying, I, I wanted to stay a little bit in Sweden. I had a bit of time left over for the summer, and I needed a job. And I needed a job where the, I didn't have to speak to anyone <laughs> because I couldn't speak <laughs> Swedish. <laughs> And so cutting down trees was an obvious one. Um, <laughs> Probably needed to know about like five words, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah watch yeah. out. The, 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 the tough part about that job was um, the Swedes in northern Sweden, they, they're quite, you know, they're still close to their Viking roots. So they, they brew their own moonshine. They call it Hembrent. And they tend to have a sip of it at, you know, six in the morning before you start work. So. <laughs> I got I got coaxed into having a sip and operating a chainsaw after you've drunk moonshine at 6 a.m. is not a good idea. Um, Probably scarier than being out in the bush, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. I'm still suffering from deep-seated trauma from that job. <laughs> but, yeah. I did I think, not yeah, know that. That was a I pretty was, good yeah. fact, actually. I did yeah. not know that about... The Swedes or the Vikings or any of that, uh, the Viking lumberjacks were doing things like that. But it makes sense because they're a pretty tough lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> indeed. I wouldn't think so these days, but they've got deep-seated, um, <laughs> you know, raid and pillage issues that are still there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. All right, so, but you don't have a third we're going to stop on two? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think I only got two. I'm okay, they were pretty good, though. They were actually very informative for me, actually. <laughs> okay, so... Let's tell people where they can find you if they would, um, A, like to just uh, book a safari or B, maybe get learn more from you, you know, contribute, whatever that would be. 
Yeah, indeed. No problem. Um, so probably these days, uh, the easiest way is via email, as we always say. So um, my email address is Craig G. So there's a second G there at wilderness.co.za or ZA if you're South African, but okay. .co.za. Okay. Um, yeah, and otherwise I'm on social media. My name and surname, surname is pretty unique as we've uh, murdered it during this podcast. So you can always find my name, surname on Instagram or Facebook. All right, I'll, I'll include that, the links in the show notes so people can just click. But it's always nice to say it in case they want to jump over there right away from whatever they're doing. So thanks for sharing that. Well, um, this, like most of these episodes that I do talking with people following their passion, is ending way too shortly for me, but I can't keep you here forever. So thank you so much for being here and sharing all this information. And I'm really inspired, absolutely inspired. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity, Jen. Take care. Bye. Bye. I feel incredibly lucky to have had this conversation with Craig. Hearing his story firsthand gave me an instantly better appreciation for the work he's doing. It also gave me an instant desire to take a trip to South Africa. But it's almost as if I can't imagine it fully. Even if I've seen it in movies and pictures, it kind of reminds me of the first time I saw the Golden Gate Bridge. It's not something I can fully realize until all of my senses are in the experience. Talking with him reminded me of how every person can have an impact. Every decision we make around conservation, consumption, and sustainability, it matters. I'm trying every day to pay more attention to even the simplest of things, to notice them and then to do better. The idea you heard unfold on the show about a worldwide site to champion a species is one we're continuing to talk about. If you're interested in supporting it, please reach out to one of us. Together we can totally do this. So, are you following your passion, inspiring people, and willing to share your story? Then find me, because that's what I do. And remember, keep up with all the news by visiting glisteningparticles.com and signing up for the newsletter where you'll get the inside scoop on where I'll be wandering next, some guest updates, and the latest random acquaintance story. For up-to-the-moment shenanigans, follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you see me post from down the road at your local diner, be sure to drop everything and come say hi, because I love to meet the listeners. Until next time, keep shining. Keep shining.